Um, so welcome to Under Further Review with Burke and Jen. Um, this is what we want to call our very special podcast because we are tackling the issue of sexual assault on college campuses this episode. Um, we are joined by our colleague, Allison. Hello. Who, uh, not only does she handle labor and employment issues, but as part of her law practice, she um, also deals with adjudicatory and investigatory matters related to Title IX issues for um, a very large university system in California. And she is going to be our expert today. We are go Burke and I are going to be talking about um, some of the sort of rampant um, sexual assault issues that are happening on college campuses, especially ones that have cropped up probably in the last year. Right. So this seems to be a really timely issue um, because over the past year or 18 months, um, the Department of Education has launched a huge investigation of, I believe, 50 colleges throughout the country um, looking at their, uh, basically their failure to comply with Title IX requirements to ensure equal opportunities in education for both men and women. Um, and partic in particular, or I guess most recently, there was a lawsuit filed against the University of Tennessee by six former um, female students, all of whom had, were um, asserting claims of rape or sexual assault against members of the football and basketball teams at the University of Tennessee, the men's teams, just to be very clear, um, and uh, arguing that the process that the University of Tennessee uses to address these claims um, through the adjudicatory process at the school um, was really unfair to the victims of those crimes. The University of Tennessee story kind of blew up around the Super Bowl because they cited as sort of evidence of the history of the university failing to deal with sexual assault claims appropriately. Um, an incident involving Peyton Manning back in, I think it was 1995, maybe 1996, um, where he allegedly sat on the face of a woman trainer while she was um, taking a look at a foot and ankle injury that he was suffering from. Um, so that's really kind of brought that into the news, although uh, Peyton Manning is not a defendant in the case, nor um, is the woman who he assaulted, um, or allegedly assaulted, I guess, uh, part of the lawsuit either. But it really is about sort of this culture that is being... Um perpetuated by the athletic department at the University of Tennessee for allowing essentially an unfair practice and process to unfold um, that's really damaging the, the plaintiffs in this issue. Um, one of the chief complaints is that the athletic department is so heavily involved in this process and the process is so heavily weighted in favor of the defendants that a lot of the plaintiffs have either dropped the charges because it's taking too long for the process to play out or they've transferred because they don't want to have to go through the process that um, is set up at the University of Tennessee. All the while, these uh, student athletes are allowed to continue playing football or basketball or they are allowed to transfer before a hearing is held, so they essentially get off scot-free um, in most instances. Um, so the process that we've been talking about really, so I guess my understanding is that the at the University of Tennessee, players have essentially three options, which would be one, to admit to the fact that they like sexually assaulted someone or engaged in sexual misconduct, um, two, take on sort of the university process, or three, um, 
have the process governed by the Tennessee Administrative Procedures Act. And most states have Administrative Procedures Acts, and it's where like an administrative law judge that is either appointed at random or, you know, appointed at the mutual agreement of the parties, they goes through a hearing, not a court hearing necessarily, but, you know, an administrative hearing that sometimes has discovery, has rules for like, you know, interviewing and questioning witnesses and um, they have subpoena powers and things like that, but it's not quite to the level of a court proceeding. Um, and what is alleged in the uh, federal complaint filed by the plaintiffs at the University of Tennessee is that here, the dean of the school gets to pick the administrative law judge, and the process takes so long, as I said earlier, that you know women often drop their case or um, they transfer before the case is heard, and that there is cross-examination of victims during this process, and um, you know each side can be represented by counsel, and it is closer to a courtroom-like trial than the process at other schools. Right, and the way the process was described as part of the complaint, and you know, to be clear, the complaint will, of course, kind of um, spin the facts in a way that's most beneficial to the, the plaintiffs, but the way that they've described the process is that, you know, if, let's say, a woman in particular, I'm, I'm looking at the complaint now, so one of these women um, was allegedly raped by a former basketball player for the University of Tennessee. She started disciplinary proceedings at the through the university process. I believe that the basketball player was found to have engaged in sexual misconduct under those procedures, and then he decided to basically appeal using this Administrative Procedures Act. He then completely disengaged from the process, but nonetheless, the university moved forward with it. And the way that the process is described is once you get to the administrative procedure, it seems to kind of turn the tables and treat the victim as if she's the one who's done something wrong. So she was subjected to cross-examination, um, kind of having to re-describe the incident that happened to her, whereas this basketball player... They delayed the process so long that he was able to transfer to a new school. Um, nothing about the incident was disclosed um, such that it could interfere with the new university accepting him as a basketball player. And um, he just didn't participate in the process, so she went through um, the whole procedure with him not having to really suffer any consequences. And one of the interesting things I thought about this particular um allegation. The basketball player was represented by Don Bosch, who is a former University of Tennessee athlete, and he sits on the university's board of athletics. And he was the one who essentially told the basketball player that he that you should use this administrative procedure. Um, so Allison, what we wanted to ask you is, um, what is wrong with the University of Tennessee's process <laughs> here? I mean, it sounds like if you were if you were a defendant, of course you'd want the opportunity to cross-examine witnesses and to basically be able to prove either beyond a reasonable doubt or like plant doubt that this case or some this actually happened. So why is why are sexual assaults and sexual misconduct allegations different? Well, I think that historically they have always been dealt with in the criminal courts, and that typically has never been a good place for victims to get justice, and that 
with the, with the reasonable doubt um, standard and also with the ability to do the cross-examination and start sort of victim blaming and put the victim through the, the whole process, the criminal process, typically either uh, prosecutors don't take the cases because there's not clear enough evidence and they don't have a good shot at getting a conviction, so they just simply won't take the cases. Or it's such a uh, difficult and arduous process that the, the victims or survivors drop out before anything happens. So the ability for people to get justice in the criminal system has never been good. The rates of success are so, so low, it almost merits not going. It's almost the process to go through to, to, prove, to prove a point rather than actually knowing that you might get some justice out of it. So I think that with the school situation is that you know, I don't think this is a new thing or a new phenomenon that's been happening. I think that it's just finally gotten the media attention. Uh, Ten years ago, I was working in the uh, rape crisis center in, Bear in Boston area where there's, you know, so many schools. And it was rampant then as it is now. And typically, um, women in college campuses were, you know, asked to go through the criminal process. And they often dropped out of school because they would live in the dorms with the perpetrator. They would go to classes with them and um, they would never see anything happen to the perpetrator. So I think the difference is, is that now that it's starting to get um, more attention and people are realizing what, is, what a difficult situation um, the victims have to go through, and the fact that they are dropping out of school, not doing well in school, it affects them for the rest of their lives and the perpetrators are not held accountable. So during the school process, um, it's not a reasonable doubt standard. It's a preponderance of evidence. Mm -hmm. It's not criminal. The sanctions aren't criminal. Um, typically, it's either, you know, they can be, have a transcript notation to say that they were found um, to have engaged in misconduct. They could get suspended from school or suspended for, a, you know, a semester of school. They can be asked to get counseling, things like that. So the penalties aren't criminal in nature, so it doesn't warrant a criminal standard, a reasonable doubt standard. Um, so, I mean, I guess your original question was why were the, why were the university's policies, what was wrong with them? Um, and I think the issue is that the standard, if, and I don't know all the, the particulars of this case, but the idea now um, under the Title IX in most schools, you get to define what is consensual sexual conduct. And for the most part, people are now saying that it has to be affirmative consent. Mm -hmm. And that it's not something that women are supposed to have to endure or something that they have to, they have to prove that they actually weren't interested in doing it. Really, it should be the focus on the perpetrator that the person was actively engaging affirmatively, you know, participating, enthusiastically participating. And um, when you're asking the women, the, the, who, in this case, to be cross-examined and kind of prove that something bad happened to them, you're dealing with a situation where you're actually, you know, kind of keeping this high standard like the criminal court systems. And, um, I mean, just historically, it hasn't worked out for women. And this is a different situation now where we're saying if you want access to education, um, you know, you should be allowed to let people know that this happened, to engage in a process where you're protected. And it sounds to me also like there was just no, I mean, there's some trauma involved when you're going through this process mm -hmm. and putting somebody back through cross-examination in this manner without any protections, um, you know, essentially might dissuade people from coming forward because it's such a difficult thing to go through. 
So having more protections in place where there is, you know, some type of cross-examination, but what, if it's done in a, a more thoughtful manner with the fact that somebody's going through a process where they've just been allegedly, you know, assaulted, and they're just trying to have uh, ability to participate in their education without um, going through this kind of situation and knowing that they're going to get some justice, that the person will be held accountable. So that's a long answer to your question. There's so many things involved, I'm not sure I... And I do think, you know, Allison, to your point about the women kind of being, uh, having to deal with being in school with the people or the person who allegedly assaulted them, that was something that was cited by each of the victims in the complaint in the University of Tennessee, either that they were told that these guys would be taken off of campus and then they would see them in their dorms still. Right. Um, one woman was in the university's nursing program and they had like a GPA threshold that she dropped a tenth of a point below, and she was thrown out of the program, yet the person who the university found engaged in sexual misconduct got to transfer away and right. no mark on his record. Mm-hmm. So, Well, and that's also something that you have to think about mm-hmm. is that, you know, in, in the, the schools that I've dealt with, you know, they really do provide support around that. Sometimes you're given more time to take your finals. Um, you're mm-hmm. given tutoring support because, you know, you've, you've had something that will likely affect your ability to engage in academics for a while um, and, you know, fully engage in campus life and you might be, you know, having uh, mental health issues following it. So having no support in doing something like that is just not the right way to handle these situations. And it sounds like they're really behind in where they need to be. Um, And we do want to acknowledge that there's probably the vast majority of victims of sexual assault are female. They're also male yes. victims right. of sexual assault. So there we're, certainly are. Yes. Yeah, so we're talking very generally here about Tennessee and the cases that we are looking at, but we certainly don't want to um, indicate that, that we only believe that victims of sexual assault are female. Absolutely. And I don't know if it were a male-on-male uh, or a same, I wonder, I guess this is a question maybe for Allison, if it was a same-sex situation because the... Um, Title IX specifically talks about, you know, treating, uh, having equal opportunities to education. Would that trigger a claim under Title IX, or would it be probably a different statute they'd have to rely on in that case? Uh, You know, I don't know because I haven't dealt with that situation yet, and this is, I am fairly new to this area, and so I'm I'm kind of just getting my head around everything, but I think like the, in California at least, the DFEH situation where... When you're talking about kind of gender or sex use as a weapon, mm-hmm. then I think it is related to like a gender hostility and would yeah. fall under Title IX. So I would say that it still would use Title IX. I don't know that we have any case law or any examples to to uh, make that claim, but I would say that it would be. Yeah, and I, I mean, I tend to agree because I think that you would probably use... Um, some like theories of law under Title VII and apply it to Title IX, it's right, like federal right. to federal. Yeah. Um, so contrasting the University of Tennessee process, um, recently the Yale basketball captain um, was expelled in February in connection for a sexual misconduct allegation. Um, and in this case, you know, there was a lot of publicity surrounding this because it was right at the time that uh, the like March Madness was happening and the NCAA like, didn't Yale win the Ivy League so they were going to be in the tournament so. for the first time yeah. and he basically was expelled right before the last game of their season so um, and apparently he was a very you know he was a captain so a very big part of the program um, so my understanding is that 
you know, the complaint was filed in November of 2015, and apparently the incident took place 11 months prior. Um, the victim is a junior at Yale, but after the complaint was filed in 2015, the process seemed to happen fairly quickly. So at Yale, they have like a university-wide committee um, made up of like 30 professors and community and Yale community, Yale University community members, and the fact finder is appointed to do an investigation. And as soon as that investigation is done, um, it's made available to the parties, and the university-wide committee appoints has a chair and selects five members from the 30 to serve as the panel that hears the allegation. Um, and this all happens within, like, so from complaint to hearing, it looks like it happens from in between, like, four to six to eight weeks. Um, and during the hearing, both the complainant and the respondent are permitted to make a 10-minute statement, and then they're interviewed by the panel. So only the panel members interview either the complainant, the, um, the subject, or witnesses. If there is cross-examination to be had, it is a situation where you can submit questions to the panel, and the panel has discretion as to whether or not they're going to ask those questions of either the victim, the subject, or the witnesses. Um, the panel then meets um, and has basically like a secret ballot to determine whether or not they think that um, the respondent slash subject has violated university policy. And if they, and if I guess maybe it's three out of five vote that he or she has, then they recommend um, a penalty and the recommendation is then presented to uh, the relevant decision maker for undergraduates, it's the Yale College Dean, who then either accepts or rejects or modifies the panel's conclusion. Um, and either the complainant or the subject slash respondent can appeal that final decision. But the appeal is really based on like procedural um, issues or the discovery of, of new evidence. It's not really about... They don't rehash the facts. Exactly. Um, so in that situation, is that more similar or different than sort of closer to best practices or further, I mean, it sounds like it's leaps and bounds ahead of what happens at Tennessee, but. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that um, I'm personally at this point in my understanding and knowledge of the process, I don't think that the panel process is something that I would consider best practice because first of all, um, if you have like a, a administrative judge, somebody that's trained in sexual assault and trauma-based mm -hmm. situations, then you're going to be a lot more sensitive to how the process will go. And also, people that are going through trauma present differently than people who are, you know, are even the perpetrators. And mm -hmm. so my concern is always with that committee process is whether or not those, those folks are actually really, as a group, qualified. Also, if you have a panel of five and you've got, even when they're doing the cross-examination, so they're taking down the adversity that you're, you know, experiencing mm -hmm. as the victim... It, these are really difficult things to talk about, and you've got five people that uh, that you have to talk to about this that are part of the university that will continue to be part of their university. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think it's much better. I think that that is exactly kind of the process that, you know, having the questions and facts answered, but not in a way that's cross-examination. And I can say that I've been in these adjudications where the attorney that is representing the perpetrator will want to ask a question that's like a very leading, you know, edgy question, and they say it to the hearing, and I, I hear them tell the hearing officer, here's how, here's the question I want you to ask. 
But when the hearing officer asks the question and just asks it like as a simple question and not as something like I'm going to like, get you, mm-hmm. the answer is so different, you know? So it's, it's a very, um, it, it, it's not trying to, you know, um, make somebody look, you know, it gives the people the opportunity to just like tell the story as it is without being afraid and scared to answer it in a certain way. So I do think that having the panel members um, ask the questions is better, but I would just, I can just imagine as a victim having five people asking you questions Mm -hmm. and then also having five people have the history rather than one person. Um, And then by secret ballot, I'm a little concerned (laughs) by that as well because then no one's accountable for the decision and the process that was made. And so I think that if you have a hearing officer that is, you know, making written findings and you know what they have to stand, they have to stand behind it. So they are going to be very thorough and ensure that they've got the evidence to support their decision for both sides. Because, you know, for the perpetrators as well, I mean, their education could be at stake here Mm -hmm. and their reputation and all of those things. So it's, something that I think needs to be, um, there needs to be accountability and there needs to be transparency in the decision that's made. So having kind of a secret panel. So it's a panel that I, that I so far haven't found um, that is something that I think what I would consider best mm-hmm. practice. But I, I do think that all of the universities are really struggling with what the process should be. And they're all, you know, doing rewrites of their process as things that are happening come up and they see problems in the area because they're they're really creating a whole new evidentiary process, mm-hmm. some, something that we don't have right now. And I think that we'll start seeing best practices in the next you know, few years, and that maybe there will be a model. But right now, I think universities are, are using their student conduct misconduct model right now and just trying to like figure out how to change it to suit more of the sexual assault style situations. Um, so the captain of the Yale basketball team, Jack Montague, um, was expelled from school. Um, for the alleged misconduct, and he is—he has said that he was going to sue the school. Um, one because I think it got out that he was expelled for sexual assault, because um, because the process is supposed to be very confidential. Right. But uh, one of the things that was either said by a friend of his or a family member when talking to the press is that while the process may appear to be very straightforward, in practice it's very opaque, and it's supposed to be completely confidential and. Um, so I understand like sort of the concerns you raise about the fact that you do want to have someone stand behind findings and, right. um, and not that that person is held accountable, but just so that you understand that this is how the process works. You know? Right. And when you want a confidential process, if you bring five members into it, who might be talking to five of their spouses, <laughs> and might, you know, you're just, you're just opening it up more, um, for that confidentiality breach. Um, and you know, the confidentiality is a really big and difficult issue because, you also have the victim who is, you know, agreeing to maintain confidentiality, but there's nothing that prevents them from going on Facebook or going, you know, I mean, it's, or having their friend do or it or something carrying a mattress like around. Yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it, I think the confidentiality aspect of it is not something that in this day and age when it's so easy to get the information out, there's mm-hmm. so many different means to do that. Uh, but having five people as the panel, I think, also increases the risk of that happening. So one of the things that has also recently come out is that the Knoxville police, uh, going back to the University of Tennessee right. for a second, has decided that it is going to cease its practice of providing courtesy calls to University of Tennessee's football coach when their 
when his football players get in trouble. Um, it had, it came out basically in a review, and I think it's probably via like a Freedom of Information Act request that the uh, police chief in Knoxville called Butch Jones four times during in the wee hours of the morning when A.J. Johnson and Michael Williams were accused of rape in November of 2014. So the Knoxville police have decided to stop doing these courtesy calls. Yeah, and I would say that I think the uh, local papers in Knoxville and I believe the Tennessean is out of Nashville have done a really great job of uh, investigating yeah. and these covering issues, the story yeah. um, because that's uh, another um, issue with sort of the process of this lawsuit is that the suit was filed in Nashville, which I think is a couple hours away from Knoxville. The argument being that these plaintiffs couldn't get a fair um, shake in court in Knoxville. The judge in the in Nashville just, uh, I think, denied the university's motion to change the venue back to Knoxville. She also denied their motion to exclude any discussion about Peyton Manning, saying that they had not, nor could they, prove that it was irrelevant to these claims, since it absolutely went to the argument there's a history of um, uh, inappropriately dealing with sexual assault claims at the university. Made against athletes. Yes. I was going to say that it's also going to be interesting from the other side because here you have the victims challenging the process, saying it wasn't fair to them. And in California, there's actually been some cases that have been going um, forward against universities saying that the process, the new new Title IX process, is so victim-friendly that it's actually Mm -hmm. now um, discriminatory against the perpetrators. Mm -hmm. So I think that you're going to see a lot of these processes at the university level under court scrutiny um, to determine whether or not that they are, you know, a balanced process for both sides. So I think, I mean, I, I absolutely think that these have come a long, long way from where they used to be to give victims some, um, some justice in the educational process. But it's going to be interesting to see how it all shakes out because I think that both the perpetrator and the victims are starting to, um, you know, be represented and go to court to say whether or not the process should be, how it should be. So I think we'll see that in the coming years. I mean, probably a lot of court battles in different states that might, you know, determine what this federal law is going to mean for the, um, you know, not just now sports, but now sexual assault on mm-hmm. college campuses. Will the Department of Education or even the Department of Justice weigh in with, because I know the EEOC issues guidelines all the time for right. this sort of stuff. I would absolutely believe that they would. I don't think that the cases in California got to that level, um, but they, you know, we are... Um, they are issuing uh, guidelines and different decisions um, and changing the kind of model Title IX practice. Um, so absolutely, I think that we'll see the federal government really stepping up. And I mean, Obama and um, you know Janet Napolitano, who is at the UCs and used to be part of the administration, mm-hmm. um, they've taken this head on. And I, I think that this is going to be a big priority for you know, the next administration as well, depending on who it is. So we, we might see some more... Um, we might need some more guidance from the federal government, but I think, again, that might depend on how the presidential elections go. Not to get too far off topic, but... <laughs> well, I mean, just from the standpoint of Janet Napolitano has having a just a boatload of crap to deal with at UC Berkeley. Yes. Um, right, they're one of the schools that's under federal review. They're one of the 50 that's under federal review now, mm-hmm. so... And it's interesting that it sort of fell right in her back, you know, right on her lap in her own now yeah. at her schools right. when she was the one really championing this cause, and... Um, I, I mean, I think it's so wonderful that she's done this, and she's probably the right person to be at the helm of the 
ship for the UCs while they're going through this process because I think that she will not rest until there's a process that is effective and helping victims. President Napolitano, Santa Clara grad, go Broncos. <laughs> so to kind of circle back on a comment, uh, what Genevieve was talking about with the uh, Knoxville police keeping the uh, football team coaches in the loop on uh, what's going on with their players, that was kind of a common theme um, among the complainants um, in the University of Tennessee um, lawsuit that there's just so much autonomy given to these given to the football team, that the coach, Butch Jones, would just say, we're dealing with this internally. I'm going to punish people internally, mm -hmm. and then nothing would happen. Um, and something I just thought was an interesting fact, whether it weighs on uh, the process, um, Dave Hart, who is now the athletic director at the University of Tennessee, um, was hired away from Florida State University, which um, recently settled a lawsuit um, from a woman who alleged that Jameis Winston, a Heisman Trophy winner and uh, number one draft pick in last year's draft, mm -hmm. NFL, raped her. Um, so they paid her a million dollars, almost a million dollars, nine hundred fifty thousand. Um, they did. The university did not admit that they did anything wrong, um, but that was sort of where uh, Dave Hart was overseeing the department when that happened, and now mm -hmm. he's at Tennessee. Although it sounds like their issues predate his arrival, um, he certainly appears to bring a culture of the athletic departments make the money, um, so they get to do what they want to do. Yeah, so um, Erica Kinsman, who is the woman who alleged that Jameis Winston sexually assaulted her, her, in her complaint in federal court alleged that FSU did nothing and acted with indifference to her allegations. Um, as part of the settlement that she reached with FSU, um, in addition to the $950,000, uh, Florida State agreed to enhance and expand its sexual assault awareness program for five years, so they put themselves under a consent decree, essentially. I mean, I don't know what that looks like, but that's what they've agreed to. Um, so, Allison, we really thank you for being here today and, and coming up and um, participating in our very special pod. This is the part of our podcast that we like to call the three-minute warning. Yes. Um, which was our hot takes. Um, from before, and uh, you're more than welcome to stay and discuss. But uh, we really wanted to just touch very briefly upon um, the things that are going down with live with Kelly and Michael. <laughs> so, yeah, for those of you who haven't been paying attention, there's been some uproar in uh, morning TV. Michael Strahan was, uh, he just got a job at uh, Good Morning Good America. America. Mm -hmm. um, and apparently, this news was broken to his co host, Kelly Ripa, either shortly before it became public or after it became public, um, she did not react particularly well and didn't come to work for a couple days unexpectedly. She will be back uh, <laughs> next week. But, um, yeah, she seemed real pissed off. And, uh, Do you think pissed off because he's leaving or pissed off because well, he's going to Good Morning America? It's a really good question. We can't actually figure <laughs> out why, and, um, and I'm not really sure that the articles indicate why she's so upset. So the theories are that she's upset because... They never got along. Oh. Um, and then the second one is that she was not provided any notice that this was happening. And this also took this... Something similar happened when Regis left the show, um, that she found out that he was retiring either moments before it broke publicly or mm -hmm. after it had broken yes. publicly. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, so there's been kind of sketchy on the details as to why. And I don't know that... Um, that the third theory of professional jealousy is floating around. Right. That, you know, she wanted the Good Morning America. Who's, gig. Whose spot are they taking? 
I don't know. George, maybe? Maybe. I, yeah, I have no idea. But, so, this was, um, this was, I, it doesn't really have much to do with the law because I'm sure it's perfectly fine for Michael Strahan to take another job at his same employer. Right. Um, and it's not that Kelly Ripa is under contract. I mean, I'm sure she can have days off from her job. It's not that right. she's breaching her contract either. There was a rumor that she was just never coming back to work, <laughs> which probably would have been a violation of her contract with um, the live folks mm -hmm. at ABC. But it Apparently, she will be back. She sent a, an email out to her staff late on Friday night saying, you know, thanking them and saying she'd see them early next week. So looks like Kelly and Michael will be back together at least for a little while. So. Wow. Yeah, and we basically have commented that they are both, like, excellent actors because it seemed like they got along, like, you know, gangbusters while they were on TV. We have day jobs, so it's not like we actually yeah. we watched it. But the one or two times that I'm tuned in, you know, over a holiday break or something, they seem like they're, you know, well, it seems to be enjoying each other. Yeah, exactly. Company. So it was kind that would of be a hard job to have with somebody that you didn't get along with, yeah. where you're sitting next to them and having to like have a, you know, rapport mm -hmm. and chemistry. Yeah. yeah, you don't actually like them. Mm -hmm. um, but that actually would is leading us to our second, and it's the hotter take, which is. Uh, ABC, who is the parent company of ESPN, ESPN um, has just recently fired Kurt Schilling for... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Finally, in some people's opinion. <laughs> um, so, Burke, you can describe what uh, Mr. Schilling was fired right. for. And I will tell you, this pains me as a Red Sox fan, but um, Kurt Schilling has a Facebook page that he uses to post what some people would characterize as racist, bigoted, sexist, misogynistic... misogynistic. Um, uh, homophobic uh, memes. Um, the most recent of one involved a man who clearly presents as a man with a wig and some ratty lingerie on um, with the note that, you know, this is the person who wants to use the same restroom as your daughters or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. um, arguably a very transphobic meme. Um, and so he was fired by ESPN, even though like this is a person who I believe had also been found to be auctioning off Nazi memorabilia and um, saying that Muslims were going to like burn down the country. Yes. Oh, <laughs> yes. Uh, the How our water supply was being guarded was going to be the start of World War Three or something like that. Well, yeah. now he could be a running mate for somebody. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> He's free. So after he was fired, he um, put... He posted again on his Facebook. Facebook and Twitter seem to get a lot of famous people into trouble, I will mm -hmm. say. Like, it's like they don't understand that the whole world can see this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, talking about how, you know, PC culture is ruining the world and men can't be men anymore and you know, he should be allowed to say what he wants to say. Um, I personally find his views very deeply offensive. I suppose there are people out there who don't and... He can say what he wants to say, but nobody has to hire him. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was the point that we wanted to make, which is, yes, we all have our First Amendment rights, and there are limitations to our First Amendment rights. But in this situation, ESPN also has the right to have its employees be who its employees are. I mean, they at some point they decided that the cost-benefit analysis for Kurt Schilling isn't going to work out in keeping him around, because certainly there are situations in which you know, uh, either corporations or media companies or whoever keep on controversial figures because they assume, rightly or wrongly, that whatever negativity is brought is not outweighed by the amount of money they generate. For example, Charles Barkley, who several years ago made some unflattering comments about the women in the San Antonio Spurs 
audience, he had said something to the effect of like, well, like Weight Watchers would do really well here in San Antonio. And when the cameras flashed on these really thin women, he's like, oh, they must have brought them in from Dallas. But, you know. I love Charles Barkley, but he's not one to be commenting (laughs) on other people's weight, but setting that aside. But but setting that aside, he didn't get suspended. You know, he's still on there talking about how the Warriors aren't going to win another championship, which is my own personal beef with Charles Barkley. But the fact that TNT has decided that he is worth more to us being our commentator than than not is... And even with ESPN, um, you know, looking at Stephen A. Smith, who basically said that women who get beaten up by their partners deserve it because they instigate things. He was, I think, suspended for a Mm -hmm. week, maybe, only after there was a significant outcry about his statements. Um, But, yeah, they clearly... ESPN made a a decision there that he was worth more to them Mm -hmm. on the air than um, their women fans were, I guess. (laughs) Um... We're on a similar note, uh, there is a player for the Chicago Blackhawks, since we did talk about them a couple weeks ago, also in the context of sexual assault, um, but this player, Andrew Shaw, was caught uh, on yeah. tape screaming at a referee using a slur for um, gay people that starts with an F that I won't repeat <laughs> here, but uh, he was suspended for a game by the NHL. Um, the team came out with statements pretty harsh against him harsher than the statements they had against their accused rapist uh, players. But again, that aside, uh, <laughs> you know, it shows that the NHL is really making a commitment to support its um, uh, gay and lesbian fan base and, you know, kind of not tolerating um, mm-hmm. hate speech like that. Um, certainly there are people out there who argue that the PC police are just taking over, but... did. Did Shaw say that he had forgotten what he'd said? Yeah, he, he at first said he... the uncontested defense. I think he said he, in the heat of the moment, he basically blacked out and didn't remember what he said. And then he saw on video where he was clearly saying, saying it. He's like, oh yeah, I said that. I'm really sorry. I didn't mean it. Um, and there have been some, you know, some interesting press around it that maybe as somebody who isn't gay, he might just think of it as a word that you can say that's hateful and not really understand how awful the repercussions are that's kind of an ignorance that can be cured i don't know that that's true but um it's unless he's been living in a cave for the last what five years you understand that like even if you don't necessarily believe this to be offensive you know that other people do think that it's offensive so you can sort of shape your behavior to be like i'm going to choose to say a different swear word um and i guess that's pretty much all we have for our uh three-minute warning this week. It's actually kind of a a short hot takes. There's been a lot going on, but maybe just not a lot to report about or talk about. Uh, That's how I sort of feel what's going on. We will mention the passing of Prince because I think that we would be remiss if we didn't. So Very sad. One of the greatest Super Bowl performances of all time. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I wish we had music to play us out, but we don't because we haven't, like, Purple Rain. Oh, darling, Nikki. Thanks um, for a funky time, (laughs) (laughs) So until next time, thanks so much for listening.